You're listening to Small But Mighty, the podcast of the Small Nonprofits Alliance, the online hub for Australia's small charities. And welcome to another edition of the Small Nonprofits Alliance podcast, Small But Mighty. My name's Bianca Crocker. I'm the founder of the Alliance. And here with me today is Brad King, the founder and CEO, or president, I should say, sorry, of Farm Animal Rescue, a wonderful organisation in Queensland. Hi, Brad. Thanks for being here today. Hi, Bianca. Pleasure. Um, So, Brad, you founded Farm Animal Rescue in 2012. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be? Um, And I do believe there's something to do with a couple of little creatures called Bubble and Squeak. Well, Bubble and Squeak were the first rescues, but um, I suppose the story starts a little bit before that. I was actually um, previously living in Queensland. I was living in Miami and Florida, um, and I became involved in the United States with an organization called Farm Sanctuary, which are um, 30 years old and are now the largest farmed animal sanctuary on the planet. Um, And uh, I was very impressed by the work that they did because I found that um, by telling animal stories, Uh, This is a very effective way of getting over the type of message that we're trying to get out there. So when it became um, time for us to move to Australia, um, it seemed that a good thing to do would be to bring some of the best parts of the way that organisation works here. So um, most of the the first couple of years that I was in Australia were all about finding a property, um, which we ultimately did. And then it just so happened that the first residents that we had come along were Bubble and Squeak, who are a bonded rooster and duck. How lovely! How lovely! And how and how did uh, how did they come about um, being your first residents there? Uh, well, Bubble was found walking um, along as a baby chick walking along a footpath in Woolongabba. Yep. Um, he was uh, found by some people, and um, they took him home to look after him. Because he was alone, they felt that he should have a buddy. So, for whatever reason, they decided to purchase a duckling. <laughs> and um, so the rooster and the duckling grew up together until they realised that he was in fact a rooster and not a chicken. Mm. For some reason, everybody assumes that a baby chick is going to become a chicken. Yeah. Um, so at that point, of course, in Wollongabba, that became a bit of an issue. So yes. um, we uh, we took them on here. Uh, there was there was an attempt at separating them, yeah. but neither of them were going to have that, and they both completely stopped eating and basically shut down until they got uh, reconnected. So now Squeak lives in um, her pond at night and Bubble has a stick that he sits on over the pond so he can be nearer. That is so sweet. That's so sweet. Just in in that little story, you can really, um, you know, understand how, you know, animals have the feelings and and, uh, really have some sort of connection as well, which is beautiful to hear. Um, Are there any, I mean, this is probably a tough question, this next one, but is there any one particular animal that has really stolen your heart over the time that you've had the sanctuary? Look, it's a very difficult thing because it varies. Of course, the ones that you end up becoming closest to are the ones that are distinctly not well uh, because, uh, of course, the more that you come in contact with a particular animal, the more that they are going to relate to human beings. Uh, But, of course, when you're touching base with them five or six or seven times a day, of course, it's... um, it's uh, you get a much much closer relationship with them of course when an animal is feeling ill as well they do tend to reach out for help so they're much more likely to be interested in people being around as well with with many farmed animals they don't really care that much for human beings 
Yeah. They kind of like their friends and they want to get in with their own thing. But when they're not well, then that can change. Yeah. So it varies from time to time. We, we, there, we had a, um, uh, a go to the sanctuary called Joshua for six or seven years, who was um, a, a beautiful animal, was um, absolutely the favorite of all of our visitors. Uh, but uh, he ultimately passed away from bladder stones. Yeah. So that was uh, that was incredibly sad because everybody yeah. used to take photos of me and Joshua. Uh-huh. We've also had Mary the cow, who everybody loved. We had Holly the pig, whose whose spine broke. Um, you know, there's there, there's there's just so many. Um, yeah. And with each and every one of them, you know, you 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 end up developing this incredible relationship because they become dependent on you. Yeah. Yep. I guess so. It's probably a similar question when you're asking a parent which kid is your favourite. It's a little bit hard to do that, isn't it? <laughs> um, upon reflection, do you think there's any particular story in your own life, perhaps from your childhood or um, earlier as an adult, um, that perhaps hinted that you might end up working um, in the not-for-profit space? Probably no. Mm-hmm. Um I, of course, grew up in the, um, well, I call it the Thatcher years because I was in, in the UK at the time. Um, yeah. But, of course, when I when I came out of um, school and college, what it was all about was getting into industry, getting a really high-paying job, have the right car, have the right house in the right district and all of that type of thing. Um, and, and I did all of those things. I was um, I was in my early 30s when I became a, a director of a, of a corporation in, in the UK. Um, but once I got there, I realized just um, what a soulless existence it really was because at the end of the day, all the corporations are really doing these days is trying to steal business from each other. There's there's no new <laughs> yeah. business there. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's it's just thieving business one one to the next. And I, I just found that very hollow and very pointless. Yeah. So, so then, really, yeah, yeah really, I, I had no intention of going in this direction at all, but um I, I just found out that the dream that we all had is a bit of a um, bit of a missing thing. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting because over the time that I've worked in the not-for-profit sector, when you kind of ask people, you know, how'd you get into, you know, the space, um, it's in, they're interesting stories that people tell, and and you know, people that have moved from the corporate world, which I did myself as well, um, across to the not-for-profit space, whether it was intentional or unintentional. Um, there is a bit of that, you know, I just thought there was something a little bit more out there, um, mm. which is, yeah, which is really um, interesting. Um, so the work of, um, so fam, sorry, Farm Animal Rescue works to rescue, rehabilitate and rehome farm animals while educating the community about issues surrounding um, farm animals. Why yeah. does this type of work inspire you to do what you do? Well, we, we think we think it's incredibly important work because this really is a very very misunderstood area. Uh, be, because of the prevalence of animal-based food products that are in our society, we are all fairly much raised to think of these creatures as being fairly fairly dumb and fairly pointless animals who just hang around until somebody takes them to a slaughterhouse and makes them into something useful. Um, the reality is, of course, is that when you meet these creatures, they're actually, um, in many cases, very clever. They're, they're highly social. They value the, the friendships and the social lives they have with each other. And um, they really do have an awareness of 
self and the things that they want to be doing which and of course many of those things are denied them when they enter the uh, the food agriculture system so it's it, it's it's really at the outset just the importance of getting people just to see these creatures for who they are the most common response that we get from visitors when they meet some of these animals is oh he she's just like my dog um, and of course that at the end of the day is the point uh, you know some of the animals we have here for example are the pigs and of course pigs are the fifth most intelligent animal in the world and are actually much more intelligent than your dog and yeah. yet these are the creatures of course that we put um, in tiny little pens away from everybody else so really it's the importance of the message and the fact that so few people really understand what these animals are like but also that while there's a lot more understanding now about how animal agriculture works now that we have the internet and everything. Yeah. Um, a lot of it is still hidden from people and a lot of it people would be absolutely appalled if they really knew the detail of the way that these animals are treated and, and how things happen with them. So we're basically in a, in, in a sector that uh, really needs people to understand the creatures that we're dealing with and to understand the way that we treat them, um, to really understand where we're coming from. So we, do, we just think it's an incredibly important message and that this is a creature that in our society has no voice. They're sometimes referred as voiceless and we don't accept that because yeah. they do say very clearly what they do and don't like. Yeah. However, in our society, they don't have a voice. Um, and so they're kind of the, from that perspective, the underdog of underdogs, really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, so one of the, uh, you know, exciting things that I wanted to talk to you about today and, and one of the main reasons I thought that you would be fabulous to have on our Small But Mighty podcast was to talk about um, something that happened at your organisation or with your organisation a little while ago. So in late 2017, um, Farm Animal Rescue had to close its gates to visitors um, due to a government ruling that required you to spend $300,000 on improvements to the highway outside your sanctuary, um, which sounds quite absurd. And I remember when I first um, worked with one of your colleagues and, and, and we talked about this, it was a bit bizarre. Um, but can you tell us a little more about how um, this situation came about and what the outlook look looked like for your organization at that point in time yeah sure so um almost without thought we had um received a grant from the queensland government to to build a um an adoption barn so this is the the barn that we uh, work some of our quarantine and adoption facilities through um, and we had applied to council for the permit to build that barn. Yep. And the response to that was, well, we've referred it over to the Queensland government and the Queensland government is saying that um, they're not comfortable with those, um, with the visitors and adoption facilities on the property unless the highway is expanded outside the front gate. Um, so, of course, we had to go through a, a little bit of um, just clarification of what that meant. Um, so we're saying, so so you want a turning lane. Is that what you're after? Um, well, it ended up being not what they're after at all. It was actually um, a widening of the road by about, um, about seven metres um, with um, sort of lines in the middle and a right turn coming in from the village, as well as a left turn, which we probably would have thought was, um, you know, fairly acceptable. 
Um, so major roadworks, basically, turning a, a two-lane road into what's basically a four-lane road now outside. And uh, all the estimates we got were in the vicinity of, of $300,000. But all, all we'd done was apply to build a barn. Um, and the, the outcome of it was that suddenly we were faced with this $300,000. Now, we were given a deadline, of course, by which we had to widen the highway. Um, yep. We said right from the outset that it was not appropriate to ask a charity to um, to pay for something like that because basically that's asking our supporters to pay for a highway development, which is certainly not our role. Yeah. Um, so, so we said no from the outset, but uh, it, of course, it, it got to the point where we where we refused to do it, and um, so therefore, basically, the government removed our um, ability to have visitors. And and so, the visitors for you, what did that mean for your organisation? Not having the visitors come. The the impact is primarily on the on on you know the strength of our work uh, as i was saying one of the things that's that's most effective about the way that we work is giving people the opportunity to meet an animal who's been through industry and to tell their story while that peer person is with the animal so by us not having visitors of course that's that that whole um, advocacy approach that we use was just completely removed from us. Mm. Uh, what we did, of course, we focused on a lot of video um, documentation instead. Um, we obviously kept up the communication through email and whatever else. But, yes. of course, it was never really the same because people couldn't meet the animals that, um, that they were rescuing after all. In, ter- in terms of finances, probably the biggest impact was that we lost um, a fair few sponsors. We have a sponsorship program where somebody can choose one of the animals we have at sanctuary and, and sponsor them um yep. and we lost quite a few because we had to turn around you know to somebody who was paying a fairly significant amount of money to sponsor an animal here and say we well, can't visit them yeah yeah which uh, which of course is, is is unfair any way you look at it yeah and that was obviously one of the benefits that they had sort of agreed to in in starting that sponsorship and then you exactly. have to take that away yeah. yeah um so being a small um and relatively young charity at, at, I mean, now, but also at that time, um, I can't imagine having, you know, the weight sort of and and the feeling of like you've got to take on the government, so to speak, seemed like a huge task, I can imagine. Um, how did you and your team remain hopeful during the period that the um, farm was actually closed to the public? And what were some of the things that you did to help move through that process and that time period and and help with with getting a successful outcome i know you just mentioned you know you kept up email communication and sort of ramped up the videos and things but what other sorts of things do you think there were well to to be honest with you it took a while before it sunk in that they were really trying to go to force this because i gave government every opportunity to step away from it because I knew that we had, uh, you know, a, a strong um, set of followers and yep. I knew that our support base was strong and that they would be with us and that if we opened this up to supporters, then um, they would be very angry. Yep. Uh, so I gave government numerous warnings that if they didn't, you know, resolve this and do the right thing, that we would bring our supporters in and they would, uh, they would uh, regret it. Yep. And uh, sure enough, they didn't do the right thing. Uh, we went out to our supporters. We actually 
ultimately received over 80,000 signatures on the petition that we put out. Wow, um, that's amazing. Ask, asking the government to um, remove that charge from us. Yep. Um, and, of course, once we had the 80,000 signatures, we felt we were probably in a fairly strong position. Uh, but what then underlined it even more was we suddenly received all this media interest. Mm. Um, so the, the TV stations, the newspapers and all of that started getting involved. Um, and what, what, what we sort of discovered through the process is that media actually quite, like, quite likes bashing government. <laughs> yes, so yep. you have something like this come up and it gives media an opportunity to say, you know, government is bad. Um, yep. That's actually stories that they quite like to run. Yeah, yeah. So that so became that in your favour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so, so, so we had a whole round of um, featuring on that. But then what we did was we just played the "we're not going to away" game because I think what people need to understand about government is that a lot of these things happen on the basis of attrition. So what they do is they just ignore you or tell you to go away until ultimately you do. Yeah. Uh, what government is not very good at is dealing with people who just refuse to go away. And so that's what we became. So yeah. after we've had all of that support and everything, then we set up a um, a call-in day. So we asked everybody to call into Jackie Trad's office, who, of course, is Deputy Premier. Yeah. Um, we, we gave them a two-hour period to call within, yeah, which wow. means basically that we jammed the Deputy Premier's switchboard for that period of time. Um, we had a rally outside of the government buildings, um, and, and what we did was we left four or five weeks in between each of these things. So it just seemed to government like we were coming back and we were coming back and coming back and coming back. So it just looked like we were never giving up and we were just keep going at it. Yeah. Uh, the, the big win, though, came from an, an interesting place. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I, I think there was already irons in the work anyway, but... Um, we came up to an election and that's what made all of the difference because we we sit in a in a seat that's held by the alp yeah um and we actually had the lnp candidate for the area approach us with a commitment that um and and of course this was based on all the support that it's in that we had yeah but the lnp candidate came with the commit with the commitment that if they retain if they um gained government in queensland that they would pay basically for these road developments so that we didn't have to. Um, so that was a very interesting thing. We did some TV on that. Um, and within 24 hours, we had commitments from the ALP, from the Greens and from One Nation um, that they would all support um, the road not being not being funded by us as well. Yeah. So we kind of got to the point then where it didn't matter who won the election. Um, they'd all basically made the same commitment. Yeah. So ultimately um, what the ALP government did, because they were the ones that were successful, of course, is they set up something called a charity infrastructure fund where any charity that ends up in this situation where government is requiring you to enhance state infrastructure, yeah. um, you can now apply for a grant from this fund. It's a million dollars a year they have in it. Um, to cover these sorts of costs. That's huge. Like that's a yes. um, so that's not just a win that you guys had then for you know a little farm animal place in you know in north of Brisbane. That's a really big difference that you we have actually impacted for the rest of the non for profits and and yeah. smaller not for profits as well as other ones. But particularly, I would imagine smaller not for profits across the whole of Queensland. That's incredible. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's yeah, really it was. incredible. It's an amazing outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, so you talked about obviously getting some support through the local media um, and the newspapers and a bit of TV. You talked about having, um, you know, your petition signed initially, which which you've mentioned it was 80,000. I, I thought it was at 40,000, which was, you know, that's complete. I mean, 40,000 is incredible. So 80,000 is, is spectacular um, through a change.org petition that you that you sort of had got, you know, supporters rallied around you. As yeah. a small organisation, how how did you actually, you know, build that community of people that, that ineffectively, um, in effect, sorry, it was the people power behind you that helped you do all these different things that you guided them through with the phone calls and then the rally at the, um, you know, in Brisbane and all these sorts of things. But it was effectively, you know, the people power that made this, you know, a, such a great success. How, as such a small charity, were you able to really garner such support? Well, look, it was it, it, it was basically building on what we have. We had so we had about two thousand on our email list at the time. Yep. We now have significantly more than that, of course. Yeah. Uh, but we had about two thousand on the list at that point. So we went out that way. We went out with paid with paid advertising on Facebook um, to try to pick up what we could there as well. Yep. Um, and that that sort of started off with the first level of it. And then once we got to 20,000s, um, then that's when the media started to come into play. And then, of course, people were signing the change.org um, pages yeah. because they'd seen it on TV or they'd read it in the paper. Yeah. Uh, so that that kind of um, had the effect there. But but really, you know, the starting point was just going to our supporters and saying, well, we need your help, we need you to sign this, and we need you to tell your friends. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's what we found works best with a lot of things that we do is is you know getting people to advocate on our behalf rather than doing the advocating all ourselves. Yeah, and and just for our listeners, um, can you just give us a, a snapshot? And perhaps I should have done this earlier, but in terms of the size of your organisation, how many paid staff do you have, and um, roughly what's your annual annual sort of turnover? Just so people sort of can you know just get a bit of an understanding of the size of your organization sure we have 1.2 paid staff um and uh we sit on about revenues of about quarter of a million a year yeah that's incredible and um i assume and well i know but i but i don't know exactly the details you've got a very strong um obviously supporter base like you just talked about but obviously a strong volunteer group like close group of volunteers that help at the farm and, and with the organization is that correct yeah we do volunteers of course are, are absolutely fundamental to our success we would like to have more yeah um, but you know the one thing that we never have enough of is volunteers to actually achieve as much as we would like to do uh, but the, but the ones that we have of course are, are very loyal um, and very very valuable to us and uh, really make um, make all of the difference. The farm, of course, operates seven days a week, 365 days a year, from yep. dawn to dusk. Um, we need to resource every minute of that. It's not mm-hmm. like we can take a week off. That needs to yeah. happen all the time. We we do use um, overseas workers a lot, so backpackers and things like that. 
Yep. So um, we use a, a fair bit of that, but of course there's a lot of local community in there as all as well. But this has always been our approach, and this is the way that we that we talk to our supporters, is that you know what what we're doing here is a collaboration between all of us. It's not something that I'm doing, but we're a community-driven organisation that is run and managed by the community to achieve the advocacy ends that we're trying to get to. And yeah. I think people respond to that. Yeah, absolutely. So over the campaign, um, you know, the where they government shut the gate and all that sort of process that you were talking about, um, and you, you know, you started out with about 2,000 people on your supporter, you know, list, so to speak, or in your database. Mm-hmm. Obviously that's grown exponentially. How have you... Um, engage those newer supporters over the time since the campaign what's what are some of the ways you've been able to to try and do that to keep you know obviously to keep their them um you know engaged and understanding that there is still even though the gates open again um and things are going okay that that there's still need for further support how have you been able to do that yeah so uh, uh, of course, again, we drive everything from the, the the animals that are involved. So, keeping up the communication on on what's going on with rescues, what's going on with animals at sanctuary, is incredibly important. So, we focus a lot on the social media and on the email updates and and all of those types of things, because if people are emotionally invested in what we're doing, of course, then that makes a huge difference. Mm. Um, we're also though at a very interesting time um, because, of course, as as a an organization that advocates on behalf of farmed animals, we um, have to be very critical of the way that animal agriculture, particularly in Australia, works. Yeah. Um, and while we've been talking about this um, for the last 30 or 40 years, we've never really received an awful lot of traction from the community at large in terms of this being an issue and the fact that things really need to quite significantly change. Well, of course, in the last two years, that's all changed really quite a lot. Mm. Uh, And part of that has been because activists in Australia have been ramping up the the way that they work. And like the the anti-coal demonstrators and like the climate change demonstrators, um, that has now moved into a period of civil disobedience. So that's been quite interesting for us because, of course, we need to be a very um, a very together, professional and law-abiding organisation because we have animals that depend on us, that we have yeah. to make sure are not affected by any of this. But, of course, a large number of our supporters um, are actually looking at civil disobedience as being the only way that people will listen. And, yeah. and I think it's, it's, it's worth everybody in the not-for-profit sector to understand this, which is that, you know, we, we are all always doing good work. We're always doing, you know, helping people or whatever else it is. But most of the time, nobody really knows what's going on. And unfortunately, if you go to media and whatever else with a good news story, nine times out of ten is, is just not going to be covered because that's yeah. not what it's all about. Yeah. Civil disobedience, though, tends to have an incredible media presence. Mm. So we've so we we are now sort of skating this line between being a, a very very responsible law abiding organization and the fact that a lot of our supporters are now getting into civil disobedience type stuff. Yeah. So 
this is this has been really interesting. So what is what's meant we've had to do is is that in addition to just making sure that people are understanding what's going on with the organisation and what's happening with the animals and and what's going on with the rescues and everything else, we've we've also had to um, play to the benefits of what's coming out of the um, the civil disobedience that's been occurring and reacting to the fact, for example, like that, um, you know, a, 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 a movie that was released last year received 100,000 hits on a single day this year because of some of this work going on. Mm. Uh, so we're trying to pull from both areas. So and, and really, it's, it, it's, it's not new science. It's, it's understanding what's important to our supporters and then making sure that we're meeting that need for them. But as I say, it's just a very interesting time because we're sort of pulled between two areas and we're just having to find this um, this line, which which I think is working for us um, yeah. right now. But, yeah. um, but you know, pe- people have to both be invested in the animals that are here and invested in their future, but they also need to see that we are participating in a future that's going to be better. And that wraps up another one of our Small But Mighty podcasts. I'm Bianca Crocker, founder of the Small Nonprofits Alliance. Thanks for listening.